If you weren't here with us last week, we started a new series of sermons, and uh, so I thought I'd remind everyone what we're doing. We're taking a few weeks to go through a section of Scripture known as the historical books of the Old Testament, starting with the book of Joshua last week, and uh, we'll work our way through Second Chronicles. Um, today we'll be covering the book of Judges. So the idea is that we get a big picture of why does it matter that God spoke all of these words into his world for the good of his people? Why should we love each part of this story that God has given us in Scripture? And so today we come to the book of Judges. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you may think this is going to be a depressing morning. The book of Judges is very dark and somber in many ways. Um, If you've ever heard stories about Samson, they come from the book of Judges. Sometimes children hear the kind of fun parts of those stories, and they miss the overall setting. Things go dark in the book of Judges. We're going to hear a sampling of that, uh, a story that isn't well known. Nobody ever taught the kids a Sunday school lesson about Micah and his mother and how they made a shrine in their home to worship idols. But this gives us a snapshot of what happens in a world where God's influence on the lives of his people started to wane and the people have begun to do what's wise in their own eyes. Just one little snapshot. Now, the Micah that we're about to hear about, as Byron reads, is not the prophet Micah. Same name, different person, different century. Let's see what happens when things go dark as God's ways are forgotten by his people. Judges chapter 17. Now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord, For my son to make a carved image and a cast idol, I will give it back to you. So he returned the silver to his mother, and she took two hundred shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who made them into the image and the idol, and they were put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine And he made an ephod and some idols and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living with the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, Where are you from? 
I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, Live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man was to him like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. The word of the Lord. Do you ever get a pair of socks for Christmas, like a bag of socks? And you knew you had to say thank you, but your heart wasn't in it? I'm not sure your heart was in it just now. Like, this is the word of the Lord, Judges 17. Thanks be to God, I think. That's got to be the dullest part of the Bible I've ever heard read. You're going to have to do something to help that come alive. Okay. We'll get to that. We're going to take the long way around. We're going to take the long way around to Judges and especially to verse 6. It's the first time of four times in the book of Judges that this phrase occurs. hope you didn't miss it, verse 6 of our Scripture reading. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. More traditional translation would be everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're going to come back to that. We're going to take the long way around. We're going to start in the year 1536. A pastor is sitting in his study, 1536, Switzerland. A pastor sitting in his study, trying to, trying to help his people learn how to understand Scripture. Trying to help his people learn how to love God's Word. Oh, look at that. Learning to love God's And he writes this sentence. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. John Calvin is the name of that pastor. What? John Calvin didn't study modern psychology. Without knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. John Calvin wasn't caught up in the self-esteem movement. Robert Schuller and all of that business in the 90s. I know, but he wrote those words anyway, 1536. If you don't know yourself, you can't know God. Deep statement. One of the things Calvin meant by that is that if you don't know what's missing from your heart, you'll never turn to God. You'll never know how much you need him. So... There's something missing in every human heart, something every human heart is longing for that only our God, our Father, Creator, King can supply. Here are three of those deep longings in every human heart that everybody in this room wants. 
Everybody on this planet wants joy. Joy. We want a life that is characterized by more goodness than misery. That's one way to talk about what joy is. A life that has more goodness in it than it has misery in it. Everybody wants that. You want proof? Watch how often we change jobs. Nobody ever said, I'm going to take this new job because it will make me more miserable. There will be less goodness in my life if I move to this new place and start this new career. Nobody thinks that way. Every time you make a job change, you think it's because it's going to bring you more joy, more goodness, more satisfaction. Now, you might get it wrong. Maybe it actually turns out to bring you more misery. But you never changed because you wanted more misery. Even the person who loves misery wants more of the thing they love. It's about love, joy. I want more goodness in my life. Every person wants joy. Every person wants peace. Everybody wants to not be afraid. We don't want to be afraid of what's out there. We don't want to be afraid of what's in here. Everybody wants peace. You put somebody in a place where the in here, the anxiety is just eating at them and watch how fast they will try to get out of that situation. You put somebody under stress and watch what they will do to resolve it in some way. They might deny it. They might try to defeat it. They might try to change their circumstances, but everybody's going to try to get away from whatever it is they're afraid of because we all want peace. You can't make yourself stop wanting peace. You were made to long for joy and for peace and for justice. What's justice? Justice is simply the desire that everybody would get their fair share of joy and peace. Everybody wants joy. Everybody wants peace. Justice says we want everyone to have their fair share of joy and peace. And if you're the kind of person whose life is just totally destroying the ability of other people to have joy and peace, then justice means you don't get, your your fair share is going to be withheld from you. But that's fair. Justice is this sense that everybody should have their fair share of joy and peace. And that's what politics is all about, is justice. Now, we disagree over what it means for everyone to have a fair share, right? But nobody ever said, I think I'm going to elect someone who will take more than their fair share. I'm going to vote for this candidate because I believe they will not give me my fair share. We don't think that way when it comes to politics. We disagree about what is the best way to make sure everybody gets their fair share. We disagree about what a fair share is. But we don't disagree about whether at the end of the day we want leaders who are wise enough and strong enough to lead us in places of joy and peace and justice. We're all longing for that. Why does that matter? 
What does that have to do with the book of Judges? That is actually the story of the whole Bible right there, written in the longings of the human heart. The whole Bible is about people who have been created to long for joy and peace and justice. God is the creator king who wants joy and peace and justice to flourish everywhere on this planet forever. That's his original design. So he creates little mirrors of himself, people to bear his image, to reflect something of his goodness in the way that we live and rule over the world that he's put us in. He creates Adam and Eve so that they would sort of pass on to all of their descendants this desire to follow God in order to find joy and peace and justice. But then something goes wrong. And human beings decide early on in the story, we're going to do what's wise in our eyes. We think there's a better way to joy than the way our Creator King has shown us. We think there's a better way to find the peace and the justice. God's not going to give me a fair share, so i got to do what's right in my eyes. The story takes a bad turn there. God doesn't give up. He chooses a people, people descended from Abraham, a nation known as Israel. And he plants them in a land. We mentioned last week how strategically located that land is if you want to reach the mightiest empires in the ancient world. If Egypt wants to go to war and conquer Babylon, they've got to pass right through Israel on the way. If Babylon wants to trade with Egypt, they got to pass right through Israel. So God plants a people in that land so that that people can experience gifts of joy and peace and justice from Him so that they can be a light shining out to the whole world, every nation. This is what joy and peace and justice are meant to look like and the way you get it. Is by worshiping the one true creator king. Not by doing what is right in your own eyes. And making creature kings. In the form of idols and false gods. That's God's desire. That's the reason he plants his people in the land. So I just told you Genesis through Joshua. It's God's design. Adam and Eve were supposed to fulfill that mission. They don't. He raises up Israel to fulfill that mission. And that's where we are with the book of Judges. It's a time of crisis when God's own people begin to do what is right in their own eyes. And we come to this story about Micah and his mother and a Levite. Do you notice how everybody in this story does what's right? In their own eyes. Right? Here's this guy named Micah. Right? Micah has stolen something from his mother. He has stolen 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, is that a little or a lot? It's a lot. Um, In the book of Genesis, Joseph's brothers sell him into captivity for 20 shekels. Whoa. 1,100 shekels is a lot of shekels. 
Micah has stolen money from his mom. Hmm, honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Sounds like those two are being disregarded, right? And then uh, he says, hey, mom, I heard what you said about the money. You said to God that, um, that if he would restore the money to you, you would dedicate it to him and that you hope he would curse whoever took it. Well, guess what, mom? You just cursed me because I took it. Here's the money back. So what, watch what mom does now. The Lord bless you, my son. Oh, isn't that sweet? No, it's not sweet. Do you see what she's trying to do? She's trying to reverse the curse. Oh, I called down a curse on my boy, so now let me call down blessing on him. Let me treat God like he's just a giant Coke machine. And if I pop the right bill in, the right thing will come out. I want a curse, so let me pop in the curse prayer and a curse will pop out. Oh, no, I changed my mind. I don't want Diet Coke. I want Coke Zero because, you know, the sweetener in Diet Coke, it kind of upsets my tummy a little bit. So let me change my mind and pop another bill in and get another. Is this the way God wants to be related to? Like he's a puppet on a string and if we say the magic words, we can get him to do what we want. There's no king in the land, and everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. Notice her prayer then. Oh, Lord, I'm so glad I got the money back. I want to use it to make an idol now. What? I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a cast idol. How much of the money does she use to make the idol, by the way? Did you pick up on that detail? Look at verse 4 again, if you have the text in front of you. She took 200 shekels and gave them to a silversmith. You know, everything about this passage suggests that she was standing before God and saying, I'll give the whole amount back to you. Well, the whole amount that's left over after I keep 900 shekels for myself. This story is fairly tame, right? Nobody dies in this story. People die in the book of Judges. Nobody sleeps with a prostitute in this story. People sleep with prostitutes in the book of Judges. No one is sexually assaulted in this story. There's a couple chapters later, a brutal story in the book of Judges. This story is tame, but notice how full it is of people just doing what's right in their own eyes. This man, this Levite who comes from Bethlehem, well, at the end of the book of Joshua lists all these cities where the Levites are supposed to live. Bethlehem is not on the list. To get to Bethlehem from to Ephraim where Micah is, the path that this Levite follows. You've got to pass right through Jerusalem, right where the temple's going to be one day. It's not there yet. There's a bit of irony here as you read this story. This guy who's calling is to lead worship the way that God has designed it to be led. Is just looking for a buck. Oh, you've got a private shrine in your house where people can come and have their future told? I'm down with that. You're going to give me some money? Ten shekels a year. 
Again, I told you earlier, 1,100 shekels is a big deal, a lot of money. I give you 10 shekels a year and clothes to wear and put you up. And the Levite's like, sounds good to me. Sign me up. So Micah says, well, Junior, (laughs) you were the first priest at my household shrine. You're out of a job now. I got somebody more impressive. Somebody more qualified, professional is on the job. Everything about this story is wrong. Because everything about this story says God is just there for us to play games with. And that's why this story is told. It illustrates what verse 6 says. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That refrain occurs several more times as you read to the end of the book of Judges. And again, you read some brutal things. I want to take a moment to comment on that because it impacted my life very personally. A close friend of mine uh, in high school was reading her way through the book of Judges one day, and she came across Judges chapter 19 and read this absolutely devastating story. A story about how men completely ignored their duty to care for and protect women about how other men assault those women, about how those women die. And then the aftermath, which is gory. And it really shook my friend to the core. If God is good, how could there be stories like this in his word? You see, the point, though, of a story that brutal is to say, this is not how God wants it to be. We can't assume that everything that is described in God's Word is something that God Himself approves of. God's Word describes brutal realities of a world where we have done what is right in our own eyes. And He describes that so that we will see that's not the way to the things we long for. That's not the way to joy and peace and justice. You don't get those things by going your own way. My friend Hans Beyer's quote on the, the first reflection on our worship guide today, right? My autonomy is becoming, is making me into a big black hole. That's Hans's way of describing what it's like to live a life separate from God. So, brutal things happen when we decide to do what's right in our own eyes. Our culture doesn't tell that story through the book of Judges. Our culture tells that story through movies. Um, Some of you might be familiar with the trilogy, The Purge, came out in 2013. Right? And then the next year, The Purge Anarchy, and then The Purge Election Year last year. And uh, what's interesting is that that third movie made more money than than the first one, right? So something about those movies is tapping in to our hearts. If you don't know the premise of those movies, 
First of all, let me say I'm not recommending these. Don't assume that everything your pastor describes is something your pastor approves of, okay? Kind of like Judges 19. Um, the premise is that new government has taken over, and for 12 hours a year, you can do whatever you want, the authorities won't intervene. So the hope is that um, low lives will be knocked off, and society as a whole will be better, and people who have a lot of rage inside them will get it out, and again, we'll have a more peaceful society. So that's the, that's the horror. If you read summaries of these movies, they're described as horror films, right? And the horror aspect is that kind of, oh my goodness, what would happen if for 12 hours people could just run amok and everybody do what's right in their own eyes and get away with it? What's even more horrifying is the notion that at the end of the 12 hours, a siren sounds and everybody goes back to life as normal. Do you know what's being communicated there? The people making those films know something about the human heart. That all this darkness hides in the hearts of normal people, ordinary people. That's frightening. It's frightening that in Judges 17, reading about an ordinary scenario, mother, son, Levite, in search of a way to feed himself, total disregard for anything God ever said about how to find joy and peace and justice. When there's no king in the land, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes it's like the story of Micah. And If you watch the Purge movies, you will be left with no reason for hope. You will be told that forgiveness is a good code to live by. But you won't be told anything that would give you the strength to forgive other people. God's word is not that way. Even as the book of Judges says, look at the darkness. There's a ray of light. Look at this time when everybody had begun to do what's right in their own eyes. But, but hear the hope. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The book of Judges is written by somebody who lives after God has stepped in to do something about it. And God has raised up a king. You see... From Judges through Second Chronicles, the next big step in the story God is telling is God raising up a king. And when I say king, you think fairy tale. What's the big deal? There was no king in the land. Okay. We don't want kings anyway. We're democratic people. We, we elect our officials. I don't want a king. The king is just a buffoon who sits on a throne in a Disney movie and gives the princess someone to be mad about so the plot can go forward. The king is just a relic from a bygone era, the king of England. Yeah, right. Give me a break, figurehead. 
you do want a king. And here's how I know it. In Scripture, the king is the one God raises up to be wise enough and strong enough to bring about joy and peace and justice. You never, may never have thought to yourself, I want a king, but every time you've thought to yourself, I want joy, your heart has been saying, I need a king. Every time you've thought to yourself, I want peace, you were saying, even if you didn't know how to translate it, I want a king. Every time you've wanted justice, every time you've wondered what justice is and wondered if there was somebody wise enough to know the answer, your heart has been saying, I need a king. That's what king means in God's word. That's what kind of king God himself is. And it's the king he raises up. So he's the creator king and he raises up little representatives of himself to rule over his world. Adam and Eve, they depart. They do what's wise in their own eyes and all of us along with them. So he raises up another representative, this nation of Israel. And they depart and go their own way. And we wind up here in Judges with everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. So God says, I'm going to raise up one Israelite from within that nation. And he will become the representative of me. And he will lead that nation in ways of joy and peace and justice. So that they as a people can lead the nations of the world to know me and to find those blessings of joy and peace and justice. That's what the king is meant to be. A little picture of God showing what it's like to do what is right in his eyes. And that's the king. I visited my friend Nati in Thailand a few years ago. Walked into his house, beautiful home, warm. They don't believe in air conditioning. At least not when it's only 85 degrees outside. Mantelpiece, huge picture hanging over the mantelpiece. Obviously someone very important. The whole house is orchestrated around this picture. It's the center of everything. Nati, who's in the picture? Oh, that is our king. For a minute, I was kind of freaked out. Right? Do you have like a six by four picture of George Washington hanging over your mantelpiece? Do you like have a framed picture that big of the president, Congress? There's a framed copy of the Constitution hanging front and center in your house. I was a little freaked out. Can a king mean that much to people? You know that the king of Thailand passed away recently. If you read the stories, he meant that much to people. Well, if you read about Thailand's past, you might understand why a man of integrity means a lot. A man of peace means a lot. Multiple military coups over the past several decades. It means a lot. 
that a man would walk with integrity in the midst of all that chaos. That's what Scripture is telling us. A world of chaos where everybody, if left to themselves, will do what is right in their own eyes. God doesn't just sit back and say, I'm done with it. He steps in and says, I will raise up a king. I raise up King David, Solomon, heroic kings like Hezekiah and Josiah after them. And they will all go the way of the king of Thailand. They will all die. And every good thing they did will perish with them. But I will raise up another king. A king who will defeat death. When you read the end of the book of Judges, the very last verse, it's a call to worship Jesus. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But we do not live in those days. We live in a new day. When King Jesus has come, he has embodied everything God meant Adam to be. He has embodied everything God meant Israel to be. He has embodied everything God meant the king to be. Jesus is all of that. And he will never again go the way of kings. He will never again face death because he has faced it once for us and he has defeated it. Don't do what is right in your own eyes. It only leads to chaos. It only leads to death. Follow the king. And God says, when you do that, joy and peace and justice will be yours forever. We are not in my friend Nati's house. We don't have a mantel place with a portrait of our king hanging up. You know one reason we don't do that? Micah 17 warns us. If you were to hang a picture of Jesus up there, we would start worshiping it. We would start to do what is right in our own eyes. And by the way, how would we decide what he looks like? How would we decide what color his skin is going to be in our painting? We're already making all kinds of bad choices if we start trying to put together a picture of our king. Our intention might be good. Lord Jesus, we want to honor you. We want to, we want to create an image of you, a picture. And Jesus says, don't do that. I already gave you one. Here's the picture. Want to know what I look like? Here's what I look like. I sit in a room with 12 other people. And I know that one of them is going to betray me. But I sit there anyway. And I don't leave. That's what I look like. 
I look like faithfulness even when I could run away and save my own skin. The scriptures say, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. Jesus is saying, this is what I look like. You want a picture of the king? This is it. Broken. Ordinary. Dime a dozen. It's just bread. That's what Jesus looked like when he died. He's just criminal. Just another dead man. Got in the way of the Romans. But Jesus says something bigger was going on. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant sealed in my blood. Drink from it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. What was so important about that blood? Jesus said, it is poured out for the forgiveness of many. You want a picture of Jesus? Jesus has given us a picture of himself. This is what it looks like to do what is right in the eyes of God, even when it costs you everything. This is what it looks like to pursue the joy of other people, peace for other people, justice for other people, all the way to your own death. This is a picture of King Jesus. Let me pray as we prepare to do what Jesus invited us to do, to eat and to drink in his name. Lord Jesus, you prayed at the Last Supper. We pray now, giving you thanks for this great gift of you, yourself, your life, your death, your resurrection for us. Lord, be with us now. Change us. Shape us. Set us free from the chaos that comes when we do what is right in our own eyes. Change our hearts as we obey your command to eat and to drink in remembrance of you. Amen.